I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts this morning to what you have spoken, and that you would bring the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of new creation uh, home into the very fibers of our soul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, week 15, almost done with the book of Revelation, but we have one more to go next week when iron will wrap things up for us. And uh, we've been saying again and again throughout this series that Revelation is not strictly chronological, which is true. But it is also true that as we reach the end of the book, John is giving us a vision of the end. Yet it turns out that it's actually also a beginning. It's a new beginning. It's the beginning of new creation. And new creation is not an escape from reality. It's actually a remaking of it. Now, because Revelation is full of rich symbolism and imagery, and we've been hanging out in uh, all these wild and fantastic parts of it, it's actually tempting to treat it like a fairy tale. But it's not. It's so much more, and it is so much better. Yet I do think that we can learn some things by reflecting on how our hearts respond to fairy tales. You know how fairy tales often end? They end with, and they lived happily ever after. And usually we have one of two responses to that. Sometimes both. On the one hand, we cynically smirk and we say, yeah, right. They probably got divorced a few years later. You know who you are. You know, you, you know, you know how your heart responds in these kind of moments. But Revelation actually says to us, there's some good grounds for your cynicism. Because this world is a deeply broken place. But the other response that we have is this feeling that fairy tale endings are tapping into a longing inside of us that we've had for all our life. And that longing is, I want to hope that things can be mended. I want to believe that there can be a love that will ultimately heal. And Revelation says to us, you're not wrong to hope for this but you just can't fully experience it on this side of death. You know, every major religion has some vision of the afterlife. In Islam, 
uh, the afterlife is filled with luxury and leisure and sensual pleasures. In Hinduism, the afterlife is really just a recycling of life, endless rebirth, moving up and down the ladder based on good karma or bad karma. In Buddhism, the cycle of suffering ends because you end. That's what nirvana means. It means blowing out like a candle. But here's the one that maybe we need to think about uh, the most this morning. In pop Christianity, you get your angel's wings, you float on clouds, and you play the harp all the day. And uh, I don't know if you remember the, 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 the cartoon, The Far Side. Uh, I don't know if they still make those anymore, but years ago, there was this awesome Far Side car- cartoon that showed this dude on a cloud. He's obviously dead, right? And he's dressed in white. Uh, he's got a harp. There's a halo over his head, and the caption reads, I should have brought a magazine, right? Because it's not a very inspiring vision of the afterlife. But here's the thing. The Bible gives us a far richer and far grander hope. And in fact, as, as much as Revelation contains scary things in it and intimidates us and has kept me from preaching on it for 20 years, and that was a mistake, by the way, The book of Revelation is a book of hope. It gives hope to God's people because it tells us how much God cares about the suffering and the injustice in this world. And it tells us that Jesus will win. He will triumph over every sorrow and tragedy and sin that overwhelms us. And this is given to us not just to comfort us, but to change the way that we live right now. Now, you, you, you probably realize this, but our, our vision of the future shapes how we live in the present, right? I mean, that's true when you're looking for a job. If you want, if you want to have a job in the future, pay attention, uh, college students, you're going to have to make great sacrifices of time and energy to research companies and startups you might want to work for, get your resume out there, schedule interviews, Got to do that. Your vision of the future impedes upon the present. It's true when you're engaged to be married. Some of you are engaged right now. And as you prepare for your future life together, what do you do? You make great sacrifices of time and energy to pick the date, secure the location, find the officiant, get the musicians, create the invitations, plan the party, do the premarital counseling. If you're going to have a baby, same thing. All kinds of sacrifices now to get the room ready, to buy the clothes, right? To prepare yourself for the future when this new little life is going to crash in and reorder everything about you. And it's true in fitness. You have some imagined future body that you want. So you at least try to make the sacrifices necessary and how you eat, the kind of nutrition that you take in, the exercising regularly. We get this, right? But when it comes to the most important things in life, when we are dealing with our suffering, when we are dealing with our brokenness, we need a vision of the future that it can actually stabilize us and hold us together in the present. Revelation was written to people who were in danger of being torn limb from limb by lions some of whom were covered in tar and lit as torches in Nero's palace. 
Others had been beheaded. Some had just had all their property taken from them or their family torn apart. And the way that you handle your present is completely determined by what you think your future will be. What kind of future did Jesus hold out for us to hope for? Well, you remember when we went through the Lord's Prayer? What did he teach us to pray? He taught us to pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And John is telling us in Revelation 21, I've seen this and this is what it's going to look like. You know, the book of Revelation is like John's Instagram account. And uh, it's perfectly curated. He's posting picture after picture after picture that God has revealed to him, right? And, you know, you you guys who are real Insta-famous or whatever, you know how to, like, order your pictures so when people scroll through it, it's, like, all balanced and everything. That's the book of Revelation. And here in these last scenes, we get some snapshots of the end of the story. And if there's one phrase that sums up the beauty and the glory of the hope for the future we have in the gospel, it is this, all things new. And that's what I want to talk about, all things new. John speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. That's what verse 1 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And that word new is an important word in this passage, shows up four times. Now, some of you, I know you love new things. You love new books. You love new movies. You love new houses. You love new cars. You love new hairstyles. You love new gadgets. But a new heaven and a new earth might not sound so great to you. You're like, I I don't know. There's so much that I like about this world. Is God's plan to just flush it all down the toilet? Wad it up like a scrap of paper and throw it in the trash? That didn't sound very hopeful to me. I like my coffee. I like my beer. I like my mountains. I like my my sunset. So it's critical that we actually understand the newness that's envisioned here. The Greek word here for new is the word kainos. And it doesn't mean brand new. It means new in quality. It means renewed. But you don't have to know Greek uh, to get this. Just look at verse 5. And I'm not the first person to point this out. Verse 5 doesn't say... Behold, I am making all new things. It says, behold, I am making all things new. Everything transformed. Everything renewed. Now you might be asking, why does creation need to be renewed? And here we tap into the great storyline of the Bible because this creation is under a curse. God made the world. He made it good. And he entrusted us with stewardship of his creation. But as the story goes, we didn't want to be stewards. We wanted to be masters. So we rebelled and we brought a curse on ourselves and on our world. This is how it reads in Genesis chapter 3. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you know what that means? It means this world, even with all its beauty and laughter and joy... Is cursed. And that's why we never feel quite at home here, even at its best. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. Something has gone terribly wrong, and you know it. You feel it in the depths of your soul, and so do I. That's why we cry over tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes. 
That's why we weep over cancerous tumors and deadly viruses and terrible tragedies. And I don't even have to mention the violence and cruelty and hurts and harms that we inflict on one another. Everything is falling apart and unraveling. This is life in a fallen world. This is life under the curse. And you know what new creation is? It is creation cleansed of the curse. In fact, a little later in chapter 22, verse 3, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed. You know, we sing about this every Christmas, don't we? In that song, Joy to the World. How does it go? He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. Can you imagine this world with all of its beauty and none of its brokenness? That's new creation. That's what God promises. That is our hope. Everything will be there, but it will be new. And not only will nature be new, we will be new. Do you notice it's not just a new heaven and a new earth, but it is a new humanity. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is a picture of God's people made new. And this renewed humanity is, is pictured in two ways, as a city and as a bride. And we've been talking about this for the past few weeks. God's people are envisioned as a holy city coming down out of heaven. A new Jerusalem, which is an astonishing picture, especially if John is writing this after 70 AD, when, when the religious capital of God's people was absolutely decimated. God is going to rebuild. He's going to reconstitute. He's going to make new. And by the way, this doesn't come by, by our own efforts. We are refashioned and repaired in God's workshop and sent to inhabit the new creation. All that is twisted in us will be untwisted. All that is broken in us, it will be mended. All the uncleanness will be scrubbed clean. God's people prepared to inhabit his renewed world. That's the city image and metaphor. But here's the other one. God's people are envisioned as a bride adorned for her husband. And that's a stunning image because you know what? Every bride looks fantastic in her wedding dress. Everyone, every time. And you know what we're told about this adornment the bride's wearing? We've already heard about this. This beauty that is given to us, it is a gift. A little earlier in Revelation 19, you may remember, there's the wedding feast for the, for the marriage of the lamb. And we are told his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Granted her. Given to us a gift. But then a little later in, in chapter 21, and Iron's going to look at this next week, we are told that this beauty is the glory of God. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. You know what this is saying? The beauty with which you will be clothed is God's gift to you. And the beauty with which you will be clothed is God's glory. Every sin wiped away, every imperfection made perfect. Jesus will beautify his people. He will wash and cleanse and make us without spot or wrinkle, as Paul writes in Ephesians 5. The world will be made new and you 
will be made new. Now, here's the question. What's that going to feel like? See, God doesn't want you to just know this hope, like knowing the answer to a math problem. He wants you to feel it in the marrow of your bones. He He wants you to feel it in the fibers of your soul, which is why he gives us such colorful and dramatic imagery in the book of Revelation. It's meant to grab hold of our hearts. And to give us a sense of what this will feel like, we need to look at two things. We need to look at what's not going to be there in the new creation and what is going to be there. What's not going to be there? Well, look at all the no mores that we find in this passage because they're telling us what it's going to feel like. They're telling us what's not going to be there. And here they are. Fear and anxiety won't be there. It says in verse 1, the sea was no more. And please, that does not mean there's not going to be water sports and dolphins. I'm pretty sure there will be, right? The sea was a symbol of chaos and unrest. And it was the place from which the, the beast, the first beast arose, remember? It represented threat. There are no more threats in God's new world. There's nothing left to fear. You know, this is kind of like trying to explain color to someone who was born blind. It just seems impossible to describe, doesn't it? Because all we've known throughout our life is fear. We are anxious and worried about so many things because so many things threaten us. We're waiting for the test results from our biopsy. We're worried about financial ruin because we're reading the stats and it ain't looking good. Right? We're experiencing relational breakdown and we're afraid of what it's going to be like to exist in a community with someone that we're at odds with. But here's the thing. In new creation, there is nothing left to fear. Fear and anxiety will be gone forever. There are no more threats. You know what else is not going to be there? Sadness won't be there. We're told in verse 4 that God himself will wipe away every tear from every eye. And there shall not be mourning nor crying anymore. Can you imagine that? What would that even feel like? Some of us have been sad for years and years and years. It's like depression has us by the throat and we can't shake free. But you know what? A new creation, sadness will be gone forever. Others of us, we've been traumatized. We've been violated. We've experienced a loss that that feels like it has changed our life forever. But in the world made new, that thing that has haunted you all the days of your life will be gone for good. Trauma and sorrow will be no more. You know what else is not going to be there? Death is not going to be there. Verse 4, and death shall be no more. No more funerals. No more burying our spouses or our parents or our children. No more farewells. In the new creation, death is no more. And pain is no more as well. Pain's not going to be there. No more suffering. No more hurt. Which means no more bullying, no more abuse, no more bodies wrecked by cancer, no more betrayals. Every wound will be healed and every relationship will be mended. Because in the new creation, pain will be no more. 
And if all these things aren't there, if death isn't there, if sadness isn't there, if fear and anxiety isn't there, if trauma and sorrow are gone forever, you know what else isn't there? Shame. Shame will be gone for good. That thing that couldn't be undone in this world, Jesus says in the new world, I will undo it. Listen, do the math. Add this together. The end of depression, the end of anxiety, the end of shame, the end of sorrow, the end of pain, the end of sin, the end of death. You know what it all adds up to? It adds up to endless joy. That's what it's going to feel like. And that's on the basis only of what's not going to be there. But you know what is going to be there? God is going to be there. Verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now finally with man. Along with a multitude that no one can number. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because it says they will be his people. And by the way, many manuscripts, it's plural. His peoples. His peoples and God himself will be with them as their God. This, this is the central promise that runs throughout the whole Bible. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make a people out of you. God said to Moses, you're going to be my people and I will be your God. The prophets continue to thunder it. The apostles repeat it. I mean, it's the main storyline. God desiring to dwell with his people. It's in the garden. It's in the wilderness. Right? It's in the tabernacle. It's in the temple. It's in the incarnation where Jesus Manifests himself as the dwelling place of God. And it's in the church. When Jesus establishes a church and he fills it with his spirit. And it's a church made up of Jew and Gentile. It's described as the house of God, the temple. Right? Revelation 21 is the culmination of what God has been saying all along. And when it happens, you're going to feel it. And you know what it's going to feel like? It's going to feel like home. That's the new world. God wants to make his home among all the peoples of the earth. You know, uh, a number of people have pointed out that one of the central themes of the modern age is restlessness. This existential angst about whether life has any meaning or is, or is going anywhere. And it's sometimes described as homesickness. But a, of a very particular sort. That we are homesick for a place we've never been, that we have an ache for something we've never had. And this shows up all over the place in film and in modern literature. You read about it in Tolkien and in Steinbeck and Virginia Woolf and Marilyn Robinson, this homesickness that nags at our hearts and it won't go away. And you know what that is, right? I mean, look at your life. In many ways, you've been on this journey looking for home. That's what we're trying to do when we're trying to build our perfect little families with our perfectly behaved children. That's what we're trying to do in finding someone who will love us and delight in us. That's what we're trying to, that's what we're trying to get to when we're looking to find the right balance of our medications to quiet our anxieties. That's what we're searching for when we're trying to grab hold of vocational velocity that's supposedly going to re- lead us to a place of peace and of rest. Now, some of you might be a little skeptical of that, but would you lift the lid on your heart for a moment and take a look inside at those desires and what they might be a clue to? You know, C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires 
Nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If money and success and sex and, dare I say it, even community, which is always disappointing, right? Heads up here for those of you who are new. If those things don't and won't provide our hearts with rest, maybe we were made for something greater than these. Or these things in their present iteration. You're longing for home. And so am I. And you're not wrong to long for it. God wants to make his home with us. And one day he will fully and finally. Jesus lived and died and rose again to secure it. One more thing that's going to be there that I want to point out. And I'm I'm stealing from iron, okay, Uh, next week. But we are told God's face will be there in new creation. Chapter 22, verse 4, it says that we will see his face. You remember the, the blessing of Aaron on the people of Israel? And we're going to say it at the end of our service today. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. You're going to have that forever. You know, there's something in us that longs for a face to look at us in love and smile with approval. Right? You see that in babies. You know, they're just over there farting around. And then you get in there, you, they see your face and they light up. You know, you see that between lovers staring into each other's eyes, basking, right, in the affection that they're experiencing through the face. And when someone wants to hurt you or show that they're displeased with you, you know what they do? They turn their face away. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will never turn his face from you. You will live forever with his face shining on you in love, delight, and approval. You will experience face-to-face affection forever. Let me ask you, aren't you tired of living with your cynicism? Are you tired of living in bitterness? Aren't you tired of living in your self-hatred? I know I am. And John is saying, take a look at this Instagram post. Behold, a world made new. Behold, a you made new. Behold, an eternal home for God's people. Behold, the face of God shining on you forever. Now, how do we know that this is true? How do we know that this isn't just another fairy tale ending? Well, I don't know know if you remember... um, the movie Waterworld. Uh, it's very forgettable. Uh, but it came out in like 1995 starring Kevin Costner, kind of the heyday of uh, him running around and, uh, you know, everybody wanted him in their films. But um, it's an interesting film that I'm not recommending, but um, there is this scene that has stuck with me for years. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. But the film is, uh, is uh, this dystopian future where the polar ice caps have melted, the world is covered with water. Okay, water world. Get it? Very, very clever. But there are a few believers in a place called dry land. And in one scene, one of the characters has had enough of hearing about dry land. And he lashes out at a woman who is a believer. And he says, what makes you so sure that there is a dry land? How do you even know it exists? To which the woman responds, holding up her hands and saying, look at us. Look at the way we are. We weren't made to live 
in the sea. We weren't meant to live in a place like this. We were meant for something different. You know you were made for more than this, right? The broken relationships, the aches and pains and heartaches that you experience over and over again, everything in you cries out. That you feel like you were made for something more. But you know what? We don't have to rely on goofy movies to say it's true. Because God has not left us without witness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the anchor of our hope. He has passed through death and into glorified life. And he left his mark in history. Real history. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits of a resurrection harvest. You know what first fruits do? They make your future visible. When the first fruits come up, you say, Ah, this isn't the only bushel or basket of grapes or olives. There's a whole lot more to come. It's the first of a whole bunch more. This Jesus raised from the dead, Paul writes, isn't the only one who will be raised. He's the first of a whole bunch more. You know, in a naturalistic worldview, evil and suffering and death, they're the main storyline in the whole senseless show. But the resurrection says, no, 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 they're not. A new world is coming. It has already began. All things will be made new. And if you need an anchor for your hope, Look at the resurrection of Jesus. Now here's what I want to end with. Is what should this vision of the future that is given to us by John, what should it produce in us now? You know, Eugene Peterson says it should revive our obedience. It should energize a courageous witness. It should fortify us for the long haul. And that's pretty good. And I'm tempted to just say amen. But I want to say it a little differently. This vision of the future tells you that you can face anything, anything, because you can lose everything and still not lose your hope. You want to know why? Because your hope is a resurrection hope. And a resurrection hope is a hope that raises the dead. It's the kind of hope that you're going to experience in places that feel like death. Which means... If you want this vision to actually do its work in your heart, then you're going to have to learn that this is enabling you to give your life away now because you know what's in your ultimate future. This has been the testimony of countless Christians throughout history who have had their hearts filled with this hope. When you read the letters of the New Testament, you find the resurrection of Jesus shaped their lives as much as anything else because they began to live their lives bookended By two resurrections. The first was Jesus's anchoring their hope. And the second was their own. Still to come when Jesus would return. And you know what this produced? It produced what George Weigel, the historian, called the Easter effect. Early Christians giving away their money for the poor and destitute. Radical self-denial on the part of early health care workers in response to the plagues. It undergirded the abolitionist movement in the late 18th century. It energized resistance to the Nazi regime in Germany in the 20th century. It animated the civil rights movement in our own country. All of it driven by tremendous sacrifice 
of people who had a secure future. And it enabled them to give themselves away now. And Weigel writes, they lived as if they knew the outcome of history. Because they did. You know, it it isn't clear how this or that moment in your life is going to go. I don't know and no one else does. But it is certain where it's ultimately headed. And that is new creation. All your labor done for the Lord is never in vain. And even if it dies, our hope is resurrection. See, the Bible paints a far grander and far richer picture of a future than just going to heaven when you die. And Christians have always confessed this. It's in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's in the Nicene Creed. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And we confess it here every single Sunday. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. It's a liturgical refrain that's meant to train our hearts in the grammar of the faith. And this is what it leads to. There is a home that awaits God's people, an eternal home. The world will be made new and you will be made new and you will experience the smile of God's faith forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wild and fantastic imagery of this book that you gave to people who were suffering immensely and it sustained them and held them together. And not only that, but led them to give themselves away for the sake of others. Lord, would you do the same for us and in us? Would you dismantle our false hopes and the futures we're trying to build for ourselves, thinking that they're going to feel like home or that they're going to bring us the face we've always longed to smile upon us? And would you help us to experience a foretaste of what you have for us in the future? And we would experience it today in this community. We would experience it this morning in this service. And that we would note because Jesus lived and died and rose again, that our future is certain. And that it would reshape how we live in the present. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.